Let's open our Bibles to the Song of Solomon, the second chapter and verse 16. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16, and hold your place there. And chapter 6 and verse 3, we'll read two verses. Two verse sixteen, six verse three. And I want you to notice the two verses as you compare them and really in the way kind of contrast them too, because they're stated a little bit different. <clears throat> Solomon Solomon chapter two verse sixteen says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. And in six verse three, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among the lilies. You see the difference. The first one says, My beloved is mine. The second one says, I am my beloved's. If you have the two places, turn them back and forth. So there's a twofold union here between the, we'll say, the bride and the groom. And uh, we will talk about that a little bit later on. The Song of Solomon is a difficult book to teach in a uh, mixed congregation, especially when you have younger and older people and all different ages. And I want to say some things about it by way of introduction. You can look up in most any commentary and find lengthy, lengthy introductions, lengthy uh, arguments and uh, criticisms. But I'm going to try to keep it as brief before I get into those two texts that I've just given you. As I can, and this will be our only lesson on the Song of Solomon because of the nature of the song itself. And I think it's best if you read it at home and read it in private and study it uh, with your uh, companion and uh, with your wife or husband. And even the younger ones can read it in anticipating of the time when their marriage will take place and they'll have really close fellowship with one another and intimate relationships with one another. And so, the Song of Solomon, the, the, it ha- first has an allegorical meaning as some of the Jewish uh, interpreters have rightly explained that this love song as typifying the love of Jehovah for His people Israel and the union with His people. Now then, not, not only Israel as the whole nation, but rather a godly remnant of that nation. And then, a blessed revelation of Christ's devoted love for the remnant of His people in Jerusalem, and the heart response which comes from that remnant to the Lord Himself. And that's a kind of an allegorical meaning of it. But there's a larger application, and this interpretation of the allegory does not exclude a larger application, to Christ and the church. This is the way most people see it. And it's warranted by the teaching of the New Testament. And uh, while the Messiah loses, uh, loves rather, the remnant of his people Israel, he also loved the church and gave himself for it. And both Israel's union with the Messiah, the Lord God, and the greater union of the church and Christ are typified in both Testaments by the marriage relationship. And I want to give you a couple of verses to show that. In Jeremiah 3, verse 14, I'll just read a couple of verses in, uh, in uh, one verse in the Old Testament and about one in the New to show you the relationship both of the Old and the New. In Jeremiah 3, verse 14, it says, Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you. So God, in speaking to Israel, says, I am married unto you. And there are many 
scriptures in the Old Testament, but I want to get to the message that I first read in order to just give you a brief of... But you can see that that does point out that God is married to Israel. Now, in the New Testament, let's look at one reference. Say, Ephesians chapter 5 would be fine. Ephesians chapter 5, it says in verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. And then uh, we'll give you another uh, one to show you the final relationship of the church when it's glorified. In the book of Revelation chapter 19, I'll read three verses, verse 7 through 9. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come and His wife had made herself ready. The wife is, of course, the church or the saints of God. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. There are multiplied numbers of Scripture. Well, I said that's all I was going to give you. Let me give you Second Corinthians 11 verse 2 because Paul makes it very clear in 11 verse 2. He says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So the church, and this was a church at Corinth, and it could be said of all local churches and all Christians alike, that they're really espoused to Christ. And uh, we'll get back to the meaning of our, our text in the Song of Solomon in, in a little bit. Let me say now, if you can turn back to Song of Solomon, 2 verse 16, 6 verse 3. And that's all we'll confide ourselves to uh, this evening. But we might say that it's a love poem or a collection of love poems written to illustrate the rich wonders of human love. You can't leave out the fact that human love is described to typify the spiritual aspect of Christ and the church and a more intimate relationship of Christ and the church. And so this human love, it celebrates the Creator's gift of physical love within the bonds of marriage commitment. And by the way, that's the only way it is to be celebrated. And the typical method of interpretation preserves the literal sense of this poem, but it also looks for a higher and more meaningful and more spiritual application, which we're going to try to give you by Christ's union to the church or to you and I as individuals as well. And so I think that if you want to read a great deal of, um, of introduction from any probably any commentary you would get, you can go real small or just as many pages as you want to read and there's so many varied opinions of the of the interpretation of this uh, Song of Solomon that it will almost boggle your mind to read them all. So I'm just trying to tonight bring it down to our text and confide it to the union. In other words, the union that exists between believers and Christ and between Christ and believers. Look at that. Between the believers and Christ and between Christ and the believers. And both of these texts point out that union. You'll find that that, is the, that would be the center of the focus, the union and the commitment and the love that's enjoyed and experienced as the marriage of two people, husband and wife, enjoy the human aspects of the married life, 
so does the believer in Christ in a greater and higher and more intimate and spiritual way enjoy their relationship with one another. And when you bring Christ into the picture here, in this book of the Song of Solomon, you begin to draw some spiritual uh, applications out of it. The majestic presence of Christ, the child of God, is very precious to God, and he shows uh, a very close union. Now, first of all, I want to give you some things about uh, these two texts, and then we'll go into the union that is spoken of. We'll, we'll talk about this, this text in general, the believer in, in Christ. We will talk about the union that exists there. And then we'll talk about the strength of that union, of what holds it together. The last, three, the last things that we'll discuss. So first of all, let me read again. It says in 2.16, My beloved is mine and I am his. In 6 verse 3, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. So, that would be like you and I saying, I belong to Christ. I belong to Him. I'm His. But you turn right around and He belongs to me. Now, He belongs to you because you have claimed Him. You say, uh, the Bible says, As many as received Him, to them gave He power, the right authority, to be called or to become the sons of God. So, He is yours because you've claimed Him. You said, I want Jesus. So you can say, my beloved is mine. He belongs to me. Now then, you turn that right around and I am my beloved. How is it that we belong to Him? Now, He belongs to us by virtue of our faith in Him. But how is it that we belong to Him? He says, He's purchased us. You're, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. So we belong to Him by virtue of His purchase of us with His precious blood. And there are many things that enter into the picture. So John 1.12 says, I have claimed Jesus who died in my place because uh, as many as received Him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. And I am His because He has purchased me with His own blood. You're bought with a price. Now then, further, the second thing, I am His by the Father's gift. We've been studying in Sunday school in John 17, uh, verse 2. Let me read John 17, verse 2. It says this, As thou hast given Him, speaking of Christ, power over all flesh, that He, that is Christ, the Son of God, should give eternal life. Now look at the last statement. To as many as thou, that's the Father, hast given Him. We are, I'm His, I'm Christ's, by virtue of the Father's gift. See, the Father has given me to Jesus. He's given you to Jesus. And He says that He, those that the Father has given Him, Jesus said, I'll give all of them eternal life. To as many as thou hast, what? Given me. So, long before the world was, God the Eternal Father had given the chosen ones in Christ to Him. It's, the Bible says, you were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. If God has made us Christ's sheep, Christ's people, God's cho uh, belonging to Christ, the sheep of His pasture, then no one can dispute that we belong to Him. I am my beloved's. No one can dispute that. 
If the Father has given us, I mean, if the Father has given us to Christ, and He's the Beloved One, and the Father has given us to Him, well then we belong to Him by virtue of the Father's gift. That's why we belong to the Lord. Not only because He purchased us, but because the Father gave us to Jesus. And then I am His by covenant, uh, by, the, by conquest I should say. Because He fought for me and He won me and he, he won the battle. And He alone went to the cross to fight the battle in order to win me to Himself. And to win the victory over the one that tried to make places claim upon me. Who were, we were all by nature children of wrath, the Bible says. And Jesus said that uh, now is the judgment of this world. I'm going to do away with that enemy that claims control over you. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And he says, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. And this he spake, signifying what death he should die. So Jesus went to battle. It looked like he was being defeated. Can you imagine winning the battle by dying? And that's what Jesus did. That's exactly what Jesus did. He died on the cross and he won the battle. It says that he might deliver them, deliver them who through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage, that through death, now Hebrews chapter 2, I believe it's verse 14, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. How did Jesus win the victory? By dying. You might say, you know, the only the living one wins the victory. But Jesus died and won the victory, and then he came forth in resurrection power. So, by the conquest, I'm his. He, he won the victory over the one that had his claim upon me. The devil had his claim upon me. And, God, and Jesus said, I'm going to break that claim. And he says, I'm going to win the battle against Satan. And he says, now is his judgment. And now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And he says, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. And he signified this by what death he should die. In his death, he would conquer Satan. You need read... Uh, uh, John chapter 12, verse 31 and 33 through 33. That's what I first quoted to you. And then uh, Hebrews 2, verse 14, if you will. And then the fourth thing, I am His by gracious surrender. In other words, with full consent, I gave myself to Him and I belong to Him. I am His because I fully surrendered. Remember when Paul met the Lord on the road to Damascus? He said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? That was full surrender. Remember, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks, the goats, the sharp sticks that poke the heels of the, the oxen to make them plow and not balk in the field. Just go on and get out of here and do some work. And Paul was kicking and rebelling against God and, and, and against Jesus. And uh, Paul said, Lord... That's surrender, isn't it? I mean, you know, you're a rebellious person, and all of a sudden you say, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? That's full surrender. And so, I am His. Have we surrendered like Paul? That's Acts chapter 9, verse 6. Uh, have we surrendered like Paul and given ourselves to the Lord? And then a third thing. We are His by a union that never can be separated. Christ is the head, and we are His members of His body. There is nothing... That my head possesses so truly as my hand and my heart. Even now you can see that my head controls my hand. And it also controls my inmost being. 
You, you cannot see it controlling my heart, but you can see it controlling my hand. Isn't it my head that makes my hand move? Isn't it my head that makes all the members of my body move? And so Christ is the head. He's our head and we're joined to Him in such a way so that we're inseparable. Can you imagine uh, the loss of one of the mystical members of Christ? Do you think Christ is going to be in eternal glory if we're members of His body, like a hand or a toe or a foot or a part of the body? If we're members of His body, of His flesh and of His bones, can you imagine Him spending eternity minus an amputation? He's not going to cut us off for sure. Because it's you and I that make His whole body that will be realized in heaven. And I'm not talking about His literal body itself because He's got a glorified body. But to make up His mystical body, which is the church, He's not going to sever any of that throughout eternity. Would go through that eternity that way without you and I we're there let me read again in second and first Corinthians well let's see the best place would be uh, let's see which one would be best uh, that, that one first Corinthians chapter 6 that we gave you just the last part a minute ago we quoted First uh, Corinthians 6, verse 20, where it says you're bought with a price, but drop back up to verse 15. It says, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Look at that. Your bodies are the members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. So that shows the morality that every member of the church and every Christian should be uh, be concerned with. Shall we take... Our members, which are members of Christ, your bodies are the members of Christ, and what? And make them members of an harlot, the moral aspect of our relationship and our union. Then it says, What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? Sure, because for two saith he shall be one flesh. He that is joined to an harlot is one body, because God's word says the two shall be one flesh. Now then, but he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. The spiritual relationship that we have as members of Christ's body, of, of Christ, uh, is a spiritual relationship, see? But he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth uh, fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? The Holy Spirit dwells in your body as a Christian. He came to live and abide there forever. Shall you as a Christian that has the Holy Spirit living within you commit terrible acts of uncleanness? Certainly not. The Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own, for you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The whole man, the whole person. Our whole being belongs to God. Therefore, we should glorify God in our whole being. So we're talking about our union with Him. And then, we are our beloveds. Back to Song of Solomon again. We are our beloveds by a most affectionate relationship. He is as the husband and the believer as the wife. Look in uh, Ephesians 5 again. Ephesians 5, verse uh, 23 and 32. 23 says... For the husband is the head of the wife. Even look, as Christ is the head of the church. 
You see, uh, the husband and the wife's relationship is like Christ and the church's relationship. And isn't the husband and the wife's relationship of the most affectionate and should be of the most affectionate nature? There is no closer relationship, humanly speaking, than the husband and the wife. And then, if that's true, in a spiritual sense, if Christ is the head of the church, and it says He is the Savior of the body, so even as Christ, so the intimate relationship between the believer and the Christ is seen here. And verse 32 says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now then, the next thing, I am my beloved's by an indissoluble connection. Just as a child is the property of his father, we are his children. And this connection cannot be dissolved. I don't, it doesn't make any difference what. What happens in life? If you have a child, that child is yours. You say, well, they go away, they run away, they get off, and I don't know them, don't know where they are, and they do bad things. No, still your child. There's nothing in this world that will ever change that. And we're His by an indissoluble union. And then last of all, He is mine personally. Well, I should say two more things, but He is mine personally. The Bible says in Romans 10 verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. This is personal. Thou shalt. No one does it for you, right? Father, mother, husband, wife, son or daughter aunt or uncle, no one can do this. If thou, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be S-A-V-E-D, saved. So, personally we belong to Him. And then last of all, Jesus is mine and I am His. In this particular section of our message, not all the message because I've got about another hour to go, Jesus is mine and I'm His always. I'm His always. I will always be His. Remember Romans 8 verse 39 says, There's nothing that shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What? And Jesus said in John chapter 10 beginning with verse 27. Listen. He said, My sheep hear My voice and I know them and I give unto them. I give unto them. They don't earn it. They can't work for it. They can't buy it. They can't get it any other way. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of My hand. He says, My Father which gave them Me. There's that our, the Father's gift again. My Father which gave them Me is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Then he says, I and my Father are one. We jointly have this, this guarantee that they shall not be separated, that we are His always. Now the second area of this uh, message that I want to give you is the union that we're talking about. We're talking about I'm my beloved's, my beloved is mine. The second thing, and I want to give you four things that we'll deal with, and it says a living, first, it's a living union. Secondly, it's a lasting union. Thirdly, it's a fruitful union. And fourthly, it's a loving union. A living, lasting, fruitful, loving. A living union. It's a living union because Christ is the head and we're the body. So that makes it living. A head in the body has to be living. A living union. And then it's a lasting union because Christ is the foundation 
And it's a good foundation. And we are the building on that foundation. We'll give you scriptures for those in a moment. And it's a fruitful union because Christ is the vine and we're the branches. And he says, except you abide in the vine, you cannot bear fruit. You must abide in the vine. And he that abides in the vine bears much fruit. And it's a loving union because Christ is the bridegroom and we're the bride. We read in Revelation 19 that the, uh, many were invited, those that were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? So Christ is the bridegroom and we are the bride. Think of this union, a living union. A living union. We have a living head. You know, a living union has to have a living head, right? As far as the body is concerned. And we're the members of that head. We belong to Him. Uh, Christ is the head and we're the body. And that's a living union. Now, not like Mohammed. Mohammed, the, the ones that follow Mohammed, their head is dead, right? He's dead. They never professed Him to be resurrected. It's not like Buddha and his worshipers. Their head is dead. By the way, the Pope is supposed to be the head of the church. And he is while he's living, but when he dies, they'll have to get another head to be a head of the church. But we don't have to get another one. We have one that lives always. We don't have to have a new one come in and take the place. And then, we have a living union with Christ, and Christ remains forever. And we are heirs of salvation through Him, because He ever liveth to make intercession for all that come unto God by Him. And then there is a lasting union. It isn't formed today and dissolved tomorrow. A lasting union. Because Christ is the foundation and we're the building. In the book of 1 Corinthians, let me give you this quick. Chapter 3, it says, for other, verse 11, For other foundation, foundation can no man lay than that is laid. Who is it? Which is Jesus Christ. It says He's the foundation. And no other foundation can... Be laid other than that which is laid. And that is Jesus Christ. And we're to build upon that foundation. We go on. We're not talking about the building now. We're talking about the fact that he is the foundation. And we are the building. The the Bible says we're built upon the foundation. Listen, Ephesians 2, I believe I haven't looked it up, but maybe verse 23. It says, you're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We're built upon that foundation of the apostles and prophets. And then quickly, Christ is the foundation of that building and we are that building. It's a union that will last till Jesus comes because He said, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And it will stand the test of the storm because it's not built upon the sand. It's a a foundation that is a sure foundation. The Bible says in the prophecy that I lay in Zion a sure foundation, a tried stone. The book of Isaiah might be chapter 28, maybe verse 18. But you find that Christ is the foundation. And He's a sure foundation. He's a tried stone. He's a chief cornerstone. He was tried by men and by demons and by Satan. And then we have not only a living union and a lasting union, but we have a fruitful union. Union. Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. He says, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. John chapter 15, the whole thing deals with the vine and the branches. He says, without me you can do nothing. We know we must abide in that vine if we're to, if we're to produce any fruit. 
And that means abide in His love and in His Word. It doesn't mean you can be in Christ one moment and cut off from Christ the next moment. It means abiding in His Word and abiding in His love. Because the subject there is fruit bearing. We had it earlier in our Sunday school. Some of you remember when we taught John chapter 15. And then the fourth thing, a loving union. A loving union. Remember Adam received a wife. God made Adam an helpmeet. And it was a loving union. And something happened there to separate them from God. They were still joined to each other. But they both fell. And God's love so loved them. It's a loving union because He came seeking them. Remember, it says they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And He said, Adam, where art thou? He said, I heard thy voice and I was afraid as they hid themselves among the trees of the garden because I was naked. And he says, who told thee that thou wast naked? What has made you afraid? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat eat of? See, God came seeking Adam because he loved him. By the way, God came seeking us too. He, He sought us. We didn't see God. Did any of you just first of all during your lifetime say, Oh, I'm going, to, I'm going to seek God. No. The Word of God came. Some witness came. Some Holy Spirit's dealing. And something happened that made you desire, Oh, yes, I really do need the Lord. And then you begin to turn to God. We didn't just go out seeking God. Who went after that one lost sheep? Luke chapter 15. Said there was 99 in the fold saved. But Jesus said, I'm going after that one sheep that is lost in the wilderness. It was said, you know, the only good thing about being lost is that Jesus is seeking you. That's the good thing about it. And He's still going to keep on seeking. If there's any consolation whatsoever about being lost, remember Jesus said He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He's still seeking that would be the positive qualification and positive thing that would be important because he's looking for you. And then we find it, it is a loving union because <clears throat> Jesus was nailed to the cross by cords of love. He voluntarily went to the cross for you and I. And the strong cord of God's love has bound us to him. He, he has, you know, Ecclesiastes, I believe it's 4 verse 12, says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The Father has one strand of that cord, the Son is the other strand, and the Holy Spirit is, is the other strand. Or if you want to put it this way, the Gospel, His death and burial and resurrection is a threefold cord that cannot be broken, quickly broken. And so we are bound to Him. Let me give you the things that binds us to Christ in our last thoughts. He is bound to us by the unbreakable cord of His own union. What does that mean? That means that He has, that he has made a, an agreement. This is an unbreakable cord of His own union. He's made an agreement that He's paid the price and that for us, if we receive Him, He's going to form a union. And so when we accept Him, this is... And we confess Christ as Savior, then that forms a union. That makes a union. He says, He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So it's by His own unbreakable cord of His own union that He makes us one with Himself. 
And so we're bound to Him by an unbreakable cord. And then we're bound to Him by the unsearchable cord of an eternal covenant. An unsearchable cord. I should say an unseverable cord. I said it wrong. An unseverable cord of an eternal covenant. Because we're chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. And what was that unseverable cord of His covenant, of this eternal covenant? Because He did the choosing... And we did the believing, and that formed a union. What formed the union between you and Christ? He chose you and you believed on Him. Remember that illustration we gave you? Over the door it says, It says, I'm the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved. You say, well, I've got to believe, and I'm to enter in by faith. And you open the door and you look back over the top, and it says, chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. And you see that it was a union between God's choice and between your believing, and that formed a union. And that was His covenant, that all who would believe, His relationship, through the blood of Christ. And then we're bound to Jesus Christ by the old cord of creation. He made us. We belong to Him because He created us. He's our Creator. Now you say, well, we fell. Yes, but we originally belonged to Him. And He made us in His image and likeness. We're not talking about the physical image. We're talking about... What we should be. And then we're bound to Jesus Christ by the golden cord of love. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, But God commendeth, God says, He commendeth His love toward us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we're yet sinners, uh, 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 without Christ, He died for the ungodly. And then we're bound to Jesus Christ by the red cord of redemption. The Bible says that there's redemption through His blood. Let me give you this quickly. The Bible says, In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. That's Colossians 1 verse 14. Ephesians 1 7 says, In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. 1 Peter 1 verse 18 says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your father. But what? But with the precious blood of Christ. That's what you were redeemed by. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Listen. But was manifest... In these last times, for you, who by Him do believe in God, that raised Him up from the dead, and gave Him glory, the last point, that your faith and hope might be in God. You're bound to Him by that strong cord of blood redemption. We sing a song. There's power in the blood. We sing, uh, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Redeemed. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And beloved... The Bible teaches us in whom we have redemption through His blood. Revelation 1 verse 5 says, Unto Him that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. So, and then we're bound to Him by the strong cord of election. Let's don't try to explain it. God is elected. And we have, uh, one old colored fellow one time says, How do we know that we're going to get to heaven? How do you believe about this doctrine of election? He says, all that, all that runs is elected. That's not true in our society, is it? But all, if you're running, 
Further, if you're running, you say, I'm going to run for salvation. I'm going to be in the race for it. He says, all that runs is elected. So if you want to know if you're the elect, people say, I may not be one of the elect. Well, are you running? Are you on the way? Have you trusted Jesus? He tells you to do the running and He does the electing, right? It's not yours to do the election. He does that. You do the running. And then by the new cord of, of our choice, we choose Him as our Lord and Savior. And six out of seven, th- seven of these bonds that the Lord Himself has tied and the only one is brought about, the only other one is on our part and is brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to cause us to receive these, these bonds of union with the Lord that we need to receive. You study this book of Song of Solomon, but the main thing that I would have you to realize is that from the human aspect, it shows a, a bridegroom and the bride's very intimate relationship of love within the bonds of marriage, and how close they can be knit together and enjoy each other's person. But it also is typical and shows us the lesson that we've tried to broaden out, the relationship between the Lord and His people, between Jesus and the believer, or between Christ and the church. And I believe if you'll read it and try to keep in in mind that the human aspect is there, But there's a deeper aspect of it than you see on the surface. And I think that will suffice you to understand more about the book of the Song of Solomon. And so we thank you for your patience and kind attention. Let's stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer.